Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today show 62. I have a wonderful guest for you today. She is the presenter of the Wardrobe Crisis Podcast and author of the book of the same name, and she is Claire Press. We have a, a brilliant, juicy chat all about fashion today and fast fashion and how fashion is contributing to the, the great harm of our planet in terms of overuse of resources, uh, huge amounts of synthetics and what's that, what that's doing to the environment. And if there's anyone who's able to help you put how you buy or choose fashion in your life at the top of your priority list in your low-tox life, then Claire Press is the woman for the job. She does things in such a way that that really resonate with me because I'm always so much about discovery rather than deprivation. And uh, in getting to know Claire better during our chat today, you'll see that she delivers that same philosophy in spades because really it is exciting to know that we can do better and it is exciting to find brands that are doing better by people and planet in terms of ethics and fair trade as well as sustainability efforts. And if you haven't listened to her podcast yet, Yet and you're trying to find resources to inspire you in the area of fashion, then Wardrobe Crisis is your next listen and Wardrobe Crisis the book is your next bedside table buy. I'd love to just make a quick mention of a wonderful new partnership that I've formed with the Whole Food Collective. You would have heard me speak about it last week and if you didn't, I'm going to give you the quick rundown. Basically, the whole reason that Lainey and her husband have created this business, God knows how, given they've got five tiny children in the mix, but clearly it's it's passion and purpose that are driving them. Uh, The whole reason the Whole Food Collective exists, this wonderful new Australian business, is to help more Australian families afford organic pantry staples. I get asked time and again at every talk I do, in every message inbox form that is able to find a way to contact me online, how can I give me some simple steps to afford more organics in my pantry and in my fridge? And of course, I've done a whole show about that uh, on the podcast a few shows ago. I think it was show number 47 from memory. Um, So do have a listen if this is something you grapple with. Um, But in terms of how they've been able to help deliver on average 30% off your pantry staples is that they have a basic membership model. So it's inspired by the US listeners listening will be familiar with Thrive, the Thrive Market concept. And now we have a very uh, wonderful Australian option as well. And the basic membership is only 59 Australian dollars. And from there on, you get on average a saving of 30% off every single shop. So if you're doing your pantry stable shop every two, four weeks, um, depending on the size of your family, you do the maths on how much you save and how quickly you start to save is pretty much it'll be on your second shop. You'll be in a huge uh, saving and... And we have an additional 10% off your first order um, for Low Tox Life community members. So head to the show notes and see how you can start to afford more organic um, food in that pantry of yours. And yeah, I'm really excited about this business and I can't wait for you to have a little read and explore and a shop. I've received my first order. I actually have a little list accumulating to place my second. Uh, The quality is excellent. It is organic 
at almost every turn and if not, it is spray-free, such as the almonds that I received, which are delicious uh, and I know you'll love it. Now, we have a couple of incredible savings as well continuing on through this month. Uh, The first is with Walida, one of my favourite brands, as you guys know, uh, an incredible company founded nearly 100 years ago by the philosophies of Rudolf Steiner. And he he (laughs) was clearly a busy man in his day between education and and founding a business like Walida, but he was passionate about holistic health um, and thriving Uh, people and of course thriving children in his education work, thriving health for us all. And I just wanted to um, mention not only do we have 15% off this month of their whole range online, obviously excluding gift packs and things that are already discounted, but you also have free postage if your order is over $29.95. So that's literally just getting one or two products because their products are really, really affordable. But I just wanted to mention Birch as a range, if this isn't something you've explored with them. It's something I like to use probably once, twice, three times a year as a bit of a mini cleanse. And I'll typically drink the birch juice, use the scrub, use the body oil for that month. And uh, it's brilliant for skin tone and evenness of skin tone on your body. That's my polite way of saying cellulite. But it's a really great range. And uh, it's that birch juice. I mean, if you have a look online about the research that's been done into birch and the many different things it can be used for... uh, on over and above uh, a simple and gentle daily cleanse, it's it's a fascinating tree and very health giving. So if you haven't explored that and you're looking for a new body oil and scrub, and you're looking to do a little bit of a cleanse, which, whichever season you're coming into, the Walida Birch range is divine. Um, and you've got all the details in the show notes there, along with your code to get that fifteen percent discount. Don't forget, we now only have a couple of weeks left of having 20% off for all Australian and UK listeners of the Pucker Tea range. And we still have a couple of spots left to claim for our US listeners. Get in there. 10 people will be sent a packet of your choice. So tell us in the comments of today's show notes which flavour you love the sound of that you want to try in the Pucker Tea range. And we've got all the links there for you to go and have a look at. And they'll send it to you for free. How great is that? And I'm so excited to finally have an offer for our US listeners. So please do take me up on it. There are a couple of spots left. Uh, And for all Australian UK listeners, I've got the code for you for that 20% off the range. So it's a great time to stock up. You can add them as little stocking fillers. They're such gorgeous packaging for the holiday season and uh, and I hope you make the most of that offer too. Thank you so much to our show supporters because it's thanks to them and the brilliant offers they bring to you guys that enables us to bring this show to you every week. So without further ado, I think we should jump into this chat that I had with Claire because it's so good and I know you guys are going to love it. Enjoy. Hello, Claire. How are you? Hello, Alex. I am very well now that I'm here with you, which has been a long time coming. We've been trying to do this for ages. We have. And it's just such an exciting thing to have you on the show. I know so many low toxes when we do, um, when we run our Go Low Tox course, we have fashion um, and textiles as one of the days of many. And there's always this thirst for more knowledge there. And I'm always sharing everybody's wonderful books. And it's just such a delight to expand on this topic on the podcast for everybody who is 
thirsty for this information that you are going to be sharing today and um, and you've just got so much to tell us. So how about we just start because some people might not know the amazingness of Claire Press just yet <laughs> um, with your personal sort of synopsis, if you like, you know, how did you come to be doing what you do today and what exactly is that? Okay, lovely. So I am a fashion activist and a journalist and a writer and a podcaster now. I'm the author of a book called Wardrobe Crisis, which is subtitled How We Went From Sunday Best to Fast Fashion. And that kind of tells the story of, as it suggests in the subtitle, how the fashion system has evolved and how we've got to this place where we're consuming clothes at a crazy fast rate and disposing of them like never before. Mm. Yeah, and my background is in fashion journalism. I spent nearly, because I'm old, <laughs> 20 years in magazines. Uh, so I had a stint as the features director of Vogue. I am currently Marie Claire's fashion editor at large. And so what all that means is that I've been really immersed in this world of fashion and clothes and trends, <laughs> yeah. which I'm not into anymore. But um, So I've got this very kind of long and involved background working inside the fashion industry. And a few years ago, when I started to research wardrobe crisis, I just got to the point where I wanted to use my knowledge and my powers, if you like, as someone who's got a bit of a platform for good to try to, I guess, make change inside the industry that I do still love, but that I reckon is out of control. Mm, mega out of control. And interestingly, given that you were in fashion in magazines very actively for 20 years, don't worry, I'm nearly 42, so we're all old. <laughs> it's all good. It's good. You know what? Experience <laughs> is awesome. And I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing now if I was just starting out. So exactly. I, I think it's, it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I always say aging is a privilege. It's my way of kind of realising that complaining about our age is a first world problem. Um, Absolutely. And you know what? Half my style icons, in fact, all of them are older women. And I'm talking super old, like Iris Apfel, who is 96. Oh, I wow. love live, lived in faces and kind of, I just love that. I think yeah. it's great. I can't wait to be 80. <laughs> my husband always laughs at me about that and says, seriously, 80? I'm like, yes, that's when I'm going to be able to wear whatever I want. <laughs> Way more than I can now. I'm going to be like surrounded by younger people and I'm going to be wearing crazy tapestry outfits and a lot of baubles and saying, come here, my dear. Oh, how <laughs> fabulous. Um, I think you're well on your way. Shall we just... <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, the fashion industry out of control. This is this is what makes me tick at the moment. And, you know, in the last sort of four years researching the book and, and now researching the podcast, which happens every week, I'm finding out more and more about how this industry is broken. And how the fashion system is not serving us in the way that it should, that it ought to be doing. And did you see it start to break over that 20 years? I mean, I think about being 20-something and you would kind of go shopping for clothes maybe tops three times a year, like really yeah. pronounced kind of seasonal moments, if you like. And that was kind of also married by pronounced seasonal releases of clothes. But these days it's kind of like there's a new collection every two weeks in some of these Absolutely. shops. Yeah. So, and did you, it's, as a, in magazines and in terms of how you guys um, put together features and things, did you find it um, quite obvious as you raised your consciousness, I guess, to see how much faster and faster things were coming in and how many more invented reasons for collections were kind of popping up? Uh, yes. I mean, I would say that the fashion magazine world still runs largely on the old calendar. Mm -hmm. So we're still talking in a magazine world about spring, summer and autumn, winter. Yeah, That's how we do it. 
And in a way, big fashion still runs along on that calendar in terms of how fashion weeks operate in London, Paris, Milan and New York. So we have those twice a year, really. Mm. But what's happening on the high street is a very different story. And as you said, shops now are receiving new drops every two weeks, but in some cases every week or you know, every few days. And this is a completely different way of shopping and of consuming to the way that we grew up with. I remember when I was a teenager and loved clothes, but it would be about DIY clothes and making stuff out of junk. Mm. <laughs> you know, you'd go to an op shop and buy a denim jacket and customize it. Or, I mean, we didn't have the money to buy clothes when, when we were 15, 16, 17, 18. And that is because they weren't as cheap as they are now. So when I had my first jobs, you know, at uni, when I worked in a pub, I, I couldn't afford to go and buy clothes every Saturday because clothes cost more than they cost today. Today, you can buy a T-shirt for $5. You can buy a dress for 30 bucks. I mean, it costs nothing. The same price as your lunch. Mm. And that, to me, that's really whack. We've lost that connection with the true value of clothing. Well, that's and if you look at, yeah. It's interesting the word cost, isn't it? Because we feel like it costs less, but it costs less to us personally. It unfortunately costs more to everybody else down the chain. Absolutely. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. That's what it is. Mm. Someone always pays the price for too cheap. And if it isn't the shopper, you have to ask, who is it? Mm, totally. And were you, tell me about childhood, were you raised as like an eco-conscious kind of little mini yogic on a hill or, or, <laughs> or were you like a, a normal, modern, you know, growing up in, a, in an urban environment and you had some sort of epiphany along the way? I grew up in a really normal way. Um, we were not rampant eco-warriors. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in the country in Britain, but we were just a really normal family. I would say, though, that... A really normal family when I grew up in the 80s was not consuming at the rate that a really normal family is consuming today. Mm. So, you know, we touched on that just now, but you just weren't buying as much stuff, not just fashion, but just stuff in the 80s as we are now. So I, I think pre the age of rampant consumerism, we did live simpler and potentially healthier and more connected lives. Mm, absolutely. Um yeah, there's no question on that at all. But I'm curious to know, though, just back to um, working in magazines, as your consciousness was raised, like, did you sort of have to sort of be quite diplomatic and patient and kind of almost drip feed your interest of this topic into your work? Because I'd imagine, you know, there's advertisers that can be upset. There's a, there's a whole ecosystem in in publishing land that if, you know, a senior person with a big voice just changes overnight about, you know, what they're talking about. I'd, yeah. I'd, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, to some extent, but it's not as bad as it might seem that it should be. Mm. That's partly because as a fashion journalist, it was always my job to write about how things were made and to yeah. interview designers and to talk to the craft of how we make clothes. I've always done that. So that was no different. So I could write more stories because it was my sphere of interest about slow fashion, if you like, although I wasn't using that term then. I only kind of got around to using that in the last couple of years. But I do think uh, in a way it was always part of my beat to just be telling stories about how stuff is made. Um, In terms of whether or not you or I (laughs) might offend some advertisers I think the answer to that is you have to be respectful of the space that you're working in and for me 
the way that I put out my message about ethical fashion is not through traditional magazines. So, you know, you, you have to, in order to hold down a job, you do the job that pays the rent. And I do love writing for magazines, but I don't see them as my soapbox. Mm -hmm. For me, I've had to build my own platform where I can talk um, more often and more authentically about the things that I think really matter in terms of these issues that are facing the fashion industry right now. So and part of it comes from being around a bit like I've been around long enough where people are willing to let me, I guess, have talk about some of the stuff that I want to talk about. Yeah. And but I mean, yeah, I mean, look, absolutely. Advertisers pay for magazines, so they're not probably the vehicle for for deep investigative pieces about fashion supply chains. And I think that's why we don't see those stories in mainstream magazines or press um, as much as we might like to. Mm. But what's beautiful about social media and podcasting and all yeah. of these communities mobilising around is that we're all sharing knowledge and basically changing the market from the grassroots up, um, which and then in turn ends up changing the way so many of these humongous brands actually operate because they're starting to feel the pressure. Yes, and I love it. Mm. Exactly as you just said, we're building a movement. You're part of a movement and I'm part of a movement. And those two movements do converge because we're looking at health broadly in terms of the health of the planet as well as health of us. So, you know what? I'm seeing a lot of activism, um, even that word, people are now embracing it. It used to be a word that meant that you were a fringe-dwelling loony. And now I think people (laughs) like it. It's a cool thing. I want to get it on a business card. Absolutely. Um, And I always say accidental activist or, you know. Oh, I love it. Because, you know, I remember, like, I was one of those kids who was very, I had a social justice consciousness. Um, You know, I I remember making a mural that was, that had prejudices, ignorance on the, on it and and sticking it up in my bedroom wall and being really interested in, in all sorts of social movements around the world. And then I I, um, I get to uni on my first day of orientation and I I do what I think good people do and I join Greenpeace and I go to my first um, couple of meetings and I remember feeling like that wasn't my my jam, even though I'm actually a regular Greenpeace donator, but it wasn't the way I wanted to be an activist and it wasn't until many years later um, and about 15 professional years later that I realised you could define your own version of activism and it didn't mean you had to feel like you weren't being a good activist unless you were swinging off the boat in the Pacific, um, you know, or, or, or leading a riot, a, a leading a demonstration or, you know, you didn't have to be so bold. Um, and thank goodness there are people who are that bold doing the tough work out there. Um, but there's many of us who want to do good things every day but not – um, be demonstrative about it. We simply just want to change the way we run our daily lives. And it's amazing now that people can really feel like that is a an extremely powerful thing to do. You know, I loved listening to you say that so much because I'm working on a, a new book about activism and about lots of these issues. And you're really tapping into what I'm thinking at the moment. Yeah. But we're seeing it everywhere we look. And I think a lot of it does have to do with as we mentioned, the rise of social media, it's about building community and it's much easier now to build community with people who aren't living next door that have the same values as we do and stand for something, you know, stand up and say that our values matter and we're going to act accordingly. That's a really personally empowering thing to do. And I think in this era of far too much choice, far too much stuff, peak stuff, if you like, mm. One of the kind of clear choices that sets you apart from that is this choice to live a lifestyle that 
rejects those kind of mainstream pushes and urges towards just over shopping and you know getting more and more and more stuff and I think we're really seeing that especially as I said on Instagram and in social media communities where people are supporting each other for taking brave steps towards living in a different way Mm. and I love it it's cool it's really empowering oh it's super cool yeah I see every day too and it is just so heartwarming where people finally join that dot between them and that, you know, a doom and gloom TED talk they've seen and realising mm. that actually, you know, yes, you know, Al Gore is brilliant and his talk was amazing and a real turning point for so many Oh, um, it's so depressing though, isn't it? It's people, so hard to watch but it's it. so goddamn <laughs> depressing. And then the average Joe goes, well, I can't do anything so I won't do anything yeah. um, because I can't make sense of how enormous that issue is. And yet now through mobilizations of online communities, we're absolutely able to join those dots and think, shape the world from your shopping basket. We can do it. Absolutely. And it's 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 very difficult when faced with some of the overwhelming information about the environment to know where to go with it. And I think you have to train yourself to give it a certain amount of attention because we do need to know. Mm. You know, it's, I think it's our responsibility to know, but not to let it take over and not to dwell in it and wallow in it because that's where inaction lies. And I mean, I, I'm guilty of it as much as anyone else. I've just been reading Naomi Klein's oh, book, yeah. This, this yeah. Changes Everything. Yeah. And it's essential reading. And if listeners haven't picked it up, I would, I would, you know, encourage you to do so. But make sure that in between reading it, you've also got like Penny Vincenzi or um, what do I read for a bit of a laugh? Agatha Christie yeah. or something so that you can swap around. Because if you just only read that book, you're not going to be able to put one foot in front of another the next day. That's so right. So I think, yeah. you know, like diarize it give yourself time to take in some of the misery stuff around the environment like for instance I was just reading about the fact that we're on the brink of the sixth mass extinction Mm. which the fifth one wiped out the dinosaurs so it's not good so yeah you know take that information on board it's your responsibility to know but don't spend your whole time doing that because that's depressing and I do think activism is about uh fueling the kind of will within you to do stuff and that comes from positivity it comes from community talking to like-minded people and realizing that baby steps you know all together make for actually that's a terrible analogy baby steps but um you know a small noise if we all make a small noise all together it makes a big noise and so yeah we can make change if we do it in a small way as long as lots of us do it yeah Agree. Agree. Speak, preaching to the converted. But yeah, I mean, I certainly struggle with it. Just the the, um, the the gargantuan nature of the problems that we face when we look at the environment. It's hard. It is hard. But just as you said, if we use them as fire in the belly to create positive change in our lives, um, then then we at least feel like we're making a contribution. And by being the change, other people get curious. Well, yeah, and the other thing is, like you said, other people get curious. It's It spreads, doesn't it? If you mm. see somebody in a cafe with a keep cup, you start thinking, is that a thing? Is everyone doing that now? Mm. And then you might ask more questions. The more people you see with one, the more you think that's the new normal. Mm. I might get rid of my disposable coffee cup and like move over to the keep cup. Yeah. So those little things really do spread. I totally agree. Three, I think it was three years ago I started bringing my own mug. I didn't like um, – there weren't so many glass keep cups back then and I just didn't like, you know, I've done enough research around plastics and heat to know I didn't want one of those. Um, so I just brought a mug everywhere I went and I was travelling quite a bit at the time and 
I had my little mug and it was quite a cute little mug. It said lovely jubbly on the front and um, and I would take it to airports and restaurants and, and cafes and things all over the world and people it, noticed. It was the most amazing conversation starter ever because it was cute and it was something fun. It wasn't an environmental statement like a keep cup can be. I mean, I adore keep cups and I think they've done an incredible job um, of, of, of getting people to use reusables more. But at the same time, sometimes people feel confronted by the representation that that means oh. that you having your regular takeaway coffee cup that's going to be tossed um, are making a judgment of them. And it's absolutely not the case, of course. I it's am. Just... <laughs> it's, it's... I'm like that awful woman in the cafe that goes to everyone saying, sorry, what, what are you doing? Why yeah. do you have that? <laughs> Why have you got that? But this little mug, this cute little mug, seemed to be a really innocent way of getting yes, people to gorgeous. start a conversation. It was really interesting. Um, but, yeah, I'm the annoying lady at the checkout who goes, no, no plastic, thank you, um, to just hope that a few more Same. people overhear me. <laughs> I've got this thing where every time I go to Woolies, bag. which I try I try not to, but yeah. I, there is one next to our house, convenience yeah. lifestyle. So every time I go to Woolies, I will ask, could I please speak to the manager? <laughs> it's me oh, again. Really? And what do and you And then say? I say... I say, I know this is not your personal choice and I'm not giving you a hard time, but please can you record that a customer came and said, it's demented that you have your avocados on a polystyrene tray wrapped in cling wrap. Could you just pass that message on because then I'll shop with you more and well done for banning the bag. Oh, yay. See, and I, I do it every time yeah, and they roll it. their eyes, but <laughs> I think they, they do actually have to log it. They do. You're absolutely right. Imagine, let's, okay, that's this week's podcast challenge. Everyone You've got to be nice. has to you go. Can't be, yeah. Of course, always nice. Um, everyone has to go to a supermarket and log a complaint with the manager. Do it. Do it's it. It's fab. That's and, like and you know what? 5,000 people... people are going to do that this week if we all do it. That's, and yeah. everyone I've ever asked has been absolutely lovely about it and said, hey, I feel like that too. Thank you. I will. Mm. Brilliant. Mm. Okay, back to fashion. I've got so much I want to ask you. <laughs> Wardrobe Crisis, your book. Um, and for me, this it was such a brilliant call to arms for everybody. But let's talk through some of the things you address in there. Um, and I guess, how about we start with what are actually the biggest crises in our wardrobes today? Well, I think the most obvious one, which I was aware of before I started to write the book, is overconsumption. Yeah. So we're buying more clothes than ever before. The average woman wears an item of clothing. I think it's there are different stats, but you can either go for an average of four times or seven times before getting rid of it. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, they are getting rid of that clothing by putting it in landfill. We know this. And we're buying clothes basically to throw them away. Of course, uh, I think many of us do try to do the right thing in terms of recycling them or passing them on to charity stores. But still, we know that far too much textiles and clothing is ending up in landfill. So that issue of overconsumption loomed large. And I'm such a culprit. I am so guilty of that. I'm still guilty of it. I've got far too many clothes. And I told a story in the intro to the book about how my wardrobe broke. <laughs> and people thought it was a device, but it's actually really what happens. So it's shaming. You know, my wardrobe snapped the, the rack inside it, snapped clean in two. And Under I didn't way. even notice. Oh, my yeah. gosh. But I didn't even notice because there was so much stuff stuffed in there that it all stayed in. No. <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. Shocking. Okay, that's, Shocking. A, that's a good admission. Um, and the more I talk to people, the more they would say to me, oh, yeah, like maybe they weren't as bad as me. Maybe their wardrobes didn't break. Let's face it, I'm the worst. But people would say to me, I've bought things and forgotten about them and found them in the boot of my car with the tag still on. Wow. Or I've lost stuff at the dry cleaners and not realized. Or, you know, I bought this thing because it seemed like a good idea at the time, but I never wore it. This is common. So that was one of the main kind of tenets that runs through the book. But in the researching of the book, I discovered lots and lots and lots of stuff about how clothes are made and how textiles are produced that I had no idea about. And what I figured was, if I'm a fashion journalist and I don't know this stuff, what's the betting that most shoppers don't know either? Yeah. And then on the on the um, subject of uh, clothes, most of the clothes that get um, that stop being worn go to landfill. What do it's we do? Not most of them. Okay. It's a lot. It's a lot. But what do we do with that T-shirt that's stained, that's worn, been worn a thousand times, and that we don't want to put in the charity bin because? Well, we just don't want to pass a, a bad piece of clothing that's got stains all over it um, to mm. the charity bin. What are we actually – what's the best way to dispose of that T-shirt? I struggle with this often because mm. we don't have the right solutions. They're not in place. Yeah. So if you give that T-shirt to the op shop, they're unable to sell it. Mm-hmm. Salvos are only able to sell about 15%, for example, of the stuff that they receive. Yeah. In their stores, that's nuts, they are isn't it? able to. Yeah, it's, it's just horrible, isn't it? Because basically, we're using them as 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 a bin, rubbish disposal services. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That is actually a simpler way of saying that, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> You're British. You have to overcomplicate things. It's your nature. It's all good. Mind you, I'm born in London, so I am known to make. Um, the odd overcomplicated statement myself. It's all good. Love. <laughs> but yeah, if you think about Vinnie's, they can only sell in their stores 15% of what is donated. What yeah. they then have to do is they have a problem. They've got to get rid of it. So their tip fees are astronomical every year. But of course, they try not to tip stuff because that's not what they want to do. And there are other routes. So for instance, they might get that t-shirt and other rubbishy textiles and sell them onto rag merchants who will then have them torn up and used for industrial rags for instance in the car cleaning industry mm-hmm. they might pass them on to a third party which sells them in africa where people are less picky because they have less choice and that to me is extremely depressing mm. and we also know that that industry is helping to decimate local textiles industries that are already under pressure yeah so that's not a good story what can we do to avoid that? You can use it for rags in your own house. I mean, I do that. Yeah. My husband's got your T-shirts, you know, tear them up and use them as rags. At least then that's prolonging their life. It's not an ideal solution. Yeah. Recently, I've been giving my towels to the Cat Protection Society. Oh, so that's them a in nice their little idea. Yeah. yeah. I love that. But the problem is we've got to find these kind of piecemeal solutions and they're not good enough and we, we don't really know what to do with a lot of this stuff. And I've put trainers in the wheelie bin and felt dreadful about it, but I don't know what else to do. Mm. So we need we need solutions and I think that we obviously need some partnerships with local government and with NGOs and with active citizens to try to find ways to make it easy for easier for us to dispose of stuff that is no longer useful to us mm. without ending in landfill. Yeah, because, I mean, it's all very well and we're going to be talking about this to, um, like, uh, kind of 
disengage our, our brains in thinking we need to buy all the time um, because obviously that for me is the number one issue here. If we just started to buy less, it would at least lessen the impact all round. But um, it almost feels like the next um, industry needs to be a more sophisticated recycling industry that involves us actually having our papers, plastics, um, tin cans and things and textiles as mm. like another bin that we can at least Doesn't know. it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's coming. Um, one example is the work that H&M has been doing with recycling of garments and they have bins in store where you can put your old clothes and they don't have to be from H&M. Mm-hmm. and then they will pass them on for recycling. It's not a foolproof solution. There's been some bad press about it recently, but we do know that that's the start of something beautiful. The idea of the circular economy where your old jeans that are in terrible disrepair and not sellable or not suitable for on sale, you can't sell them on eBay, you can't give them to your friends, you can recycle them either mechanically or chemically and reuse the cotton. Yeah, absolutely. So more of that is we're hopefully going to be seeing in the future as the circular economy becomes not just a great idea environmentally speaking, but just essential as resources become more scarce. Well, it's going to be part of the business design process, isn't it? It has to be. It has to be. Mm. But we're not there yet. But I do think lots of people are doing really positive work in this area. Yeah. I mean, I just bought last year for the first time a pair of jeans from Mud up in... um, Oh, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, Scandinavia. And I've paid my 12-month instalment and at that point of 12 months you can either return it to them in the envelope they provided which they use again and again and again so you keep it for the year that you've got the jeans and then you return it or you can just keep the jeans because you're loving them but what they do with the jeans that you send back is they turn them into new threads new pairs of jeans and um and they've just I mean they've really done an amazing job it's such an inspiring little company I'll pop it in our show notes today for anyone do it wants to check that one out World of radness, that's what that is. When you hear that stuff, you're like, yes, there's so much positive stuff going on and we need to focus on those good stories as much as we do to understand the bad. Yeah, Yeah. A lot of denim companies are are offering free mending services as well. Yeah, I'm loving that. Which is awesome. Mm. That's great because I I suck at it. So if someone else could do that for me, that would be brilliant. I'm just not not very um, uh, adept at textiles in general I'm not a on my on my podcast I interview uh, a model called Rachel Rutt who's also an artist and a musician but Mm -hmm. she's a mad keen mender and she talks so beautifully about how empowering it is to be able to learn to mend stuff and it's great but I have to say it's hard I can't do it myself I struggle there are people who are just good at crafty kind of stuff and um, and people who need to promote them and I think maybe you're the same as me we just need to promote them (laughs) But what Rachel talks about is how the act of sewing something and mending it, the physical act of spending time with the garment, Bill rekindles your connection with it or strengthens your bond with it. That and that's true. Sense. So, you're, yeah. yeah, you're much less likely to throw it away if you've spent all that time loving it. Oh, that's beautiful. And I agree. It's almost like if you've spent all that time and, again, if you – like if you actually start to spend a bit more money and up your quality game as well, um, you then sort of feel that that's a bit more precious and you need to look after it a little bit more? I think so. I mean, I often talk about the kind of tension that I feel between loving clothes and loving style and fashion mm. and then wanting to have a smaller eco footprint and just be kinder to the planet. What do you do? 
that tension exists. So I think there are, you know, I think anyone who's really into clothes finds that a problem because for me, just being a minimalist is not going to work aesthetically speaking because I'm wearing a really shiny green t-shirt as you saw. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And probably loads of rings and loads of spangly things on my shoes. So I do like that kind of bowerbird aspect of fashion. How do we square that up with not being, you know, can't swear I was going to swear not being (laughs) rotten to the environment yeah there are creative ways and increasingly they're more accessible so one of them is renting Mm -hmm. I mean I keep reading all these cool stories about how renting is taking over Uh, rent the runway in the US is enormous we don't have such good services here yet but I'm sure they're coming and if listeners are listening you know that to me is a way to make money be great to set up a really cool Instagram based rental service Yeah, but there and, are a few. Yeah. I mean, there's some occasion wear ones. This one's called Glam Corner. Yeah, I was just about Glam, to mention them. Glam I've actually yeah. rented a dress from Glam Corner. Have before. you? Yeah, the process was impeccable. It was perfect. It's great. That's brilliant. I've never done it, but I do think it's a clever idea because if you're going to a wedding and you want a one-off dress, why mm. would you want to keep it? I know. I remember one year I went. What to was it for, though? What was what for? Your dress. Oh, the the hilarious thing and and. <laughs> was that it actually didn't suit me and I didn't end up wearing it. But the whole process and even just making it so easy to send back to them and say, look, it didn't fit right and um, and then they give you a voucher for your next one to try another one so that you still feel positive about it and try it again. Mm. Um, it was just for a, a friend's book launch and I thought, oh, I might, you know, I'm, I'm going to try the, the renting a dress thing. But I'm someone who just has absolutely no issue wearing the same thing a bazillion times in public and um, not giving two hoots if someone's going to judge me for that. So I'm, I'm glad I feel that way. Um, and it means I've got a speaker dress and I've got a, um, a meeting with posh people outfit and <laughs> I've got, you know, I've, I'm quite uniform oriented and that's how I deal with, minimal, with, with minimizing how many clothes I buy. But where I come unstuck is in basics. That's usually my downfall. I, I um, you know, things fray, a little jumper kind of gets a bit tired and I always want yep. to get a new one and I'm, that's what I struggle with the most. Well, I would say that to listeners feeling, oh, I relate to that. Yeah, me too. We don't have to stop shopping. I mm. do think we do need to dial back our overconsumption, but I'm not suggesting that we give up fashion completely or we give up shopping. That's crazy. Mm. I still enjoy it, but I do advocate for a more mindful approach to shopping. Yeah, And there are some really cool Uh, particularly smaller, sustainably-minded, responsibly-produced fashion labels out there in Australia, making locally or making with fair trade in places like India, using organic cotton, and really thinking about the footprint of the things that they're making. And I think by supporting those things, we're doing good and we're also being able to feel good about what we're wearing. And I think that, as as we talked about, you know, feeling positive, it's good storytelling stuff. Mm. And I'm not saying... guilt-free but then again I interviewed someone the other day and he was saying just the very act of living is using up resources so we can't be perfect but we can be better that's right and I think as soon as we realize we can't be perfect and there is no point at which we arrive um, then the pressure's off you're just doing the best you can and raising your awareness and trying to think okay do I need this um, could I wear something I've already got? Could I repurpose something I've already got? Um, could I change up my accessories to make that outfit look different? And just do a bit of thinking before we buy. Yeah. And, and, and could I buy in an op shop? Could I swap with a friend? Could I uh, buy secondhand stuff on eBay? Could I rent? 
And and like I said, could I support some local businesses that are doing really good work? And I might mention some if you like. Please I mean, do, I'm, yeah. Here I'm going to mention. I hadn't prepared it, but <laughs> I mean, I think uh, actually I'll mention one's a good idea. So there's a an online store called Well Made Clothes. So they're an online marketplace that hooks you up with ethically and sustainably produced brands. And if you hop on there, you can see all different brands that perhaps you hadn't heard of. Um, I've found some trainers on there that are. Veja, Veja. I was going to say Veja, but maybe it's Veja, V-E-J-A. Oh, yeah. My assistant has those. They're hot. They're fab and they're very carefully produced. So Mm. they make vegan versions. It's great. And so you can find out the stories behind some of the designers on that website, which is also empowering and fun. Yeah. And also shop local, like go to markets. I love makers markets where you find new young designers who might just be in your neighborhood. Absolutely. Yeah. Who else? Um, so some really good leaders in the denim space in Australia. There's a brand out of Melbourne called Nobody mm-hmm. who are doing really good work, ethically produced. They're Ethical Clothing Australia accredited. So Nobody is working with the Institute for Frontier Materials, which is part of the Deakin University in mm-hmm. Victoria. And they've worked out how to dye new jeans using old jeans. So that's part of the circular economy. It's amazing. There's another really cool denim brand called Outland Denim, which is based in Queensland, which works with human trafficking organizations in Cambodia to give employment and training to women who've been rescued from the sex trade and their product is absolutely fantastic you don't even need to know the backstory behind what they do to appreciate it but once you know the story you can see that there are more reasons to support brands like that so I love the stories behind some of these ethical brands and that's kind of what makes them desirable to me. I agree it's kind of like you know when I'm teaching people about reconnecting with your food source when you go to a market mm. and you have a chat to a farmer and then you're eating your dinner that night and the broccoli tastes better than it's ever tasted, it probably tastes better than it's ever tasted not only because it wasn't sprayed with a whole bunch of crap but also because you know Bob grew it and Bob's a nice guy <laughs> and Bob. you had a lovely chat with Bob today and wasn't that nice. And it just like adds this whole layer of meaning to the things that you choose to surround yourself with, to the things you choose to eat, to things you choose to smother all over your body, when you when you have those origin stories. And I think it's why sometimes um, I, I'm always more drawn to a powerful origin story than a simple gap in the market story. Um, and I, I'm sure you're the same. After we've been chatting for a while, I can, I can kind of get that from you, Claire. Um, but it's... Um, you know, a lot of people ask me, oh, why did you choose that particular brand? And I'm like, because they're so transparent and there was this, just this incredible passion that this whole business was founded on that came mm. from such a deep spiritual place for this person who started this company. And that for me is always just like, that's like my moth to a flame kind of moment if I choose yeah. to engage with something or not. I absolutely relate to that. And again, bring it back to this idea of reconnecting with the value of whatever it is you're talking about, food or clothes, but with garments. If you love the story, if it's the story that made you feel that you needed to have this piece in your life, you're much less likely to turf it out after four wears, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm on my seventh wear currently of my new speaker dress after my old one actually got so tatty to the point where my husband... (laughs) gently took me aside after a talk I was giving and said, um, sweetheart, it's time. I was like, no. I love it. Her, 
<laughs> Alex, have you heard about the 30 wares hashtag? Yes. Yeah, yeah. that's and a cool thing. You should was, do that. Yeah, I should. Well, that particular speaker dress was two and a half years and I think it was it was well over 70. Yeah, um, amazing. Yeah. But who was the um, woman? Uh, oh, so that was Livia Firth's campaign. Thank and you. Yes. Mm. Livia Firth runs EcoAge and the Green Carpet Challenge. Yes. And the Green Carpet Challenge is about encouraging Hollywood stars or actors, celebrities to choose sustainable fashion for their red carpet appearances. But Livia's idea was that if you could popularize this idea that wearing something at least 30 times was cool. Mm that would build a movement and that would make more people want to be seen on Instagram and the same thing more than once, which is cool. <laughs> Finally, I can have my moment in fashion. I, <laughs> I was never going to have a moment in fashion until it oddly became cool to some people to wear something a bazillion times. And, you know, I think it's just so liberating when you make it cool and then other people start to feel comfortable going, you know what? Yes, I'm just going to wear the same thing again. I love this dress. That's why I bought it. But why not make that cool? Fashion is fashion history is littered with examples of the weirdest stuff being yeah. made cool. You know, like, oh, here's an example, PVC jeans. I saw a story the other day and it said, it was a Vogue story online in the US and it said, the naked jeans you need now or something. And it was a ludicrous pair of jeans that were completely full and they were distressed to the point of basically bearing all of the thigh and the lower half of the, mm. under, below the knee basically naked jeans stupid 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 idea and yet here are people saying here are people in fashion here are tastemakers saying to you the naked jean darling it's all about that well <laughs> let, let's not say that let's say it's not about that let's say it's about the mended jean or 30 wears why not yeah i love it <laughs> and the naked pvc jean is full of endocrine disrupting chemicals so don't wear yucko no i mean thanks. chanel yeah. did you see by any chance if any listeners had seen pictures from the Chanel show that just happened where Carl had a fake rock garden erected in the Grand Palais. I mean, ludicrous. That was all filled with PVC accessories, PVC thigh boots and PVC handbags and rain ponchos. And all I could think was, this is so uncool. PVC is highly toxic. It's highly toxic. And I understand the predicament because a lot of people don't want to wear animal-based products out there and leather and I understand that as an ethical choice of course but um, at the same time mm. let's not be replacing it with something that has environmental impacts that are actually arguably far greater because they affect us intergenerationally by you know stuffing around with our endocrine systems and subsequent um, children that we might have but also the environment when these things end up out there um, Vile. I mean, I was about to say the hormone disrupting thing. Yeah, hideous. Why would you want any of that? But you, there are solutions. Um, I do recognize that vegan concerns over not wanting to wear leather are completely valid, but you don't have to have PVC. There's no. a really cool newish, newish fiber called Pinatex, which is derived Ooh. from pineapple fibers. Fab. And it's amazing. And we just mentioned Livia Firth. She actually wore a dress made of silver looked like leather but it was pinatex and she cool. looked so fantastic and she wore it to the met gala oh well if you wore it there then yeah it's, it's, it's bound cool. to be hot yeah <laughs> or it's hot i yeah. don't know what it is cool or hot right now but it's not as hot as sweaty pvc boots no yucky <laughs> there are ways to avoid pvc without 
feeling like you need to wear leather as well. So there's something Absolutely. for everybody these days, which is and good. And I mean, uh, there's canvases a wonderful material for shoes. I just interviewed the founder of Tom's. And oh, they how did it use... go? I haven't listened yet. Oh, yeah, it was really great. Yeah. I mean, it, it was just so cool to hear from his mouth his story about how he tried to change the world and succeeded. And basically by taking a very simple shoe, which was the Argentinian canvas slip on with a rubber sole and making it hot right now that's what he's done and yeah they make vegan shoes and they make vegan sandals as well so there are options um that don't involve animal products that don't involve pvc and i would say that one of the big best and biggest things you can do to be more sustainable in your consumption is to step away from the pvc mm, absolutely love it <laughs> okay good i'm so glad that randomly came up as a tangent because i feel super passionate about that and i would have completely <laughs> forgot to talk about it um okay speaking of textiles organic cotton versus regular cotton so a lot of people obviously who might have raised their awareness on synthetics obviously moving to cotton of any kind is still a better choice in some regard but it's an even more amazing jump if and when we can to invest in organic cotton pieces can you share with us in the research that you've done and the reporting you've done on the subject some of the main reasons as to why yeah um so when i first began researching wardrobe crisis the book i didn't know a great deal about how textiles were produced across the board. I perhaps knew about wool because I've done quite a few stories in Australia about wool. But cotton production, I presumed that cotton as a natural fibre was all good. Mm -hmm. Well, we know that that's not the case. And in my book, I had uh, a great opportunity to interview Catherine Hamnett, who Ooh. is a very famous – yeah, she's amazing. She's like a rock star. She's mm. like a Vivian Westwood. Yeah. But many people have not heard of her because she actually elected to get out of fashion completely – because of its bad eco-credentials. And that was in around the mid-90s. I believe she's actually just come back with a new collection very recently. But what happened to her was she worked with the Pesticide Action Network in the UK to commission a report into how cotton, conventional cotton, was grown. And she did not like the answers, which were 25% of the world's pesticides are used in the growing of conventional cotton crops. Cotton is very thirsty farmers in places where handling chemicals are unregulated or largely so were getting sick their children were getting sick there are cases of poisonings where i mean there's one terrible story that i tell in the book where the containers that had contained the pesticides that were routinely used on these cotton crops had been washed out but not very well and then used to store and to disperse people's lunches oh, and all these God. kids in a school died. <gasps> I mean, this stuff is horrendous. Yeah. Catherine Hamnett found out some of these things and decided, I don't want to use this. I want to use organic cotton. But in the mid-90s, it wasn't very high, very easily available and she had so much trouble getting her suppliers to use it. It cost more. It was harder to find. And when she did find it, her manufacturers in Italy swapped it out in production for the original stuff. You're so, kidding. Yeah, shocking. And so this story is a kind of conduit for that message that we need to dig deeper into understanding how our fibers are made. And just because something is natural in inverted commas doesn't mean it's healthy or good or chemical free by any stretch. Mm. And so yeah, organic cotton is a no-brainer. We should be moving towards it. But it remains more expensive. Um, in many countries, there is a kind of 
monopoly of GM crops, which require high doses of synthetic fertilizers. Mm. And I think as consumers, one of the things that we should be doing is looking out for it. And as it, as demand increases, then, you know, bigger companies are going to change their ways. Yeah. And we are seeing it. I mean, that was the story from the 90s. We are seeing now in 2017 a lot more companies embracing organic cotton, but not enough. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if we just keep focus, I almost feel like it's your duty to um, – if you can, stretch your budget or just swap out what you're already um, buying by half and buy double the quality. And, and it's not that much more expensive it's in not. many cases. Already we're seeing some of the basics just not being as expensive. And same with, I mean, you know, and they have their fair trade labelling and their GOT certification as well. So it's not just about us going, yay, I've got the organic cotton, but shame about the factory worker that isn't earning a living wage. Yeah, you know, We have to make sure we're... We're win-winning on this rather than just selfishly feeling good about ourselves. It's, you know, it's it's all about everything, every step of the, um, from the farmer to us. It all matters, um, which is why I love GOT certification, um, Global Organic Textile Standard, for anyone who hadn't heard that before. Um, and... Uh, and and I really just think if if you can find it, if you do have access to it, do it, because every one of us who does starts to create that economy of scale and starts to create that message and that that um, that that thing that big big companies hear very loud and clear when we stop buying what they're making. And, you know, they're going to be in that board meeting and they're going yeah. to see quarter three going down and everybody's going to be freaking out and do some huge piece of consumer testing survey and people are going to start ticking because you don't have anything organic and then they're going to go, right, we need to, to go there. And this is how our decisions every day matter. Oh, I just got goosebumps. Wow. I okay. loved it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I was a I was total like, soapboxer some right there. tiles in there and I'm going to put them on Instagram. <laughs> Um, but it's true and and so yeah it's true we have power mm. never underestimate our power we've all got power to change things mm. and especially in fashion because fashion's just buying stuff fashion it only exists if we buy it it's yeah. not a you know it's it's not like water and air we don't even need it mm. so therefore if we choose not to buy it it's not going to exist and you know break that down and absolutely if we can create demand for better produced products with more transparent supply chains made using more responsible and sustainable fibers we can do it yeah. it's just about refusing to buy the rubbish isn't it yeah that's exactly right but i mean i do think that there is a problem with how difficult it is to wade through the information mm -hmm. um i don't expect anyone in the shops on a saturday to be like oh I can't buy this because I need to go home and spend five hours Googling the supply chains of whichever <laughs> shop it is that I'm buying them from. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. And so I think we've got to be realistic about what the average consumer is willing to do to educate themselves about the stuff they're buying. One of the good tricks that I always recommend is by downloading the Good On You app onto your phone, which is free, mm. or Project Just is my new favorite thing. It's a really cool website that does a similar job basically telling you top line information about brands and how well they do when it comes to people and planet and it's kind of fun to use they they use great content it's engaging and it's cool as well so i think just by 
um, getting a, either of those two things on your homepage or on your phone and getting the apps, then that empowers you quite easily. Yeah. And asking in shops is another one, but you don't always get the answer you want. I mean, lots of people who work in shops don't know the answers. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And we just can't, um, we can't rely on them as a source. I don't think I very often actually, you know, unless I'm, you know, in an ethical fashion store, um, you know, one of my favourite things is a time when I was on Venice Beach um, on the Abbot Kinney Boulevard earlier this year and I went into this beautiful Um, ethical denim shop and ethical denim and basics and I asked a provenance question and oh my gosh I needed to pour a cup of tea and then probably (laughs) have lunch afterwards and then probably light a candle because it was getting dark she could have gone on for hours it was just so magical to see how much she knew about the business amazing you know but we don't get that every day and that's a reality and I think I love that idea of just on your home screen you know and low toxes will already have things like chemical made and sustainable seafood app and all those sorts of things on your home screen. Add your good on you and your project just and that way you you literally have this little ethics in mm. your pocket kind of um, whip out whenever you're anywhere and you're not sure. And do a bit of research before you go if you have time. So I'm not suggesting, as I said, that you spend your whole life wading through supply chain stuff on individual brand websites. But if you, for instance, are in the market for a new swimmers for summer, you can hop on Project Just and look up their Project Just seal of approval, mm-hmm. which they independently give out to brands who've basically ticked all of their boxes when it comes to ethical and sustainable supply chains. Yeah. And I, I just remember off the top of my head, this beautiful, independent, small Sydney-based brand, which is called Shapes in the Sand. Mm-hmm. They won their Project Just seal of approval for their ethically produced swimwear quite recently. And I thought that was so lovely to see because that's a one woman show and it's a beautiful brand, but it's very small, but they're really doing the right thing and they're being recognized for that. And so a bit of research, it just makes you more empowered as a consumer so that you're not buying something on a whim without realizing how it's been made. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think um, even with kids just starting to think, does my child need 15 t-shirts? Probably not, you know, just to start kind of just de-buying, de-buy. If I had kids, which I don't because I have cats, I would just buy secondhand kids' clothes because they grow out of them so fast. So fast. And, and I was recently in Salvo's doing a project for National Op Shop Week and I had the chance to go through some of the bins at the back where you, the clothing is stored that's been donated. And it was really interesting. Like It was quite disgusting because my hands were all itchy and my arms got all itchy from all the chemicals from the clothes. Ooh. Yeah. It was good to know that. Yeah. Not that nice to experience it. No. But it well, that would have been all of... the washing powder and the fabric softeners and all that crap, wouldn't it? it I couldn't say mm. precisely what it was, but I would say that it was a combination of that plus all the rubbishy chemicals on the very cheap clothes because a lot of the stuff in there was very cheap mm. and from labels that are, you know, from Rivers and Millers and yeah. Kmart. But what I did notice was an extraordinary number of very good quality, lovely kids' clothes. Lovely. Mm. And that's obviously because kids just grow so fast. But there were really great things. And I thought, as new, beautiful things. And I thought, well, this is just an obvious, this is a no-brainer. Yeah. And just to reach out and say, look, is anyone doing a bit of a a clear out um, and have a kid that's uh, 10? Because I've got one that's 8 
and I'd love to just take the hand-me-downs rather than have you think about how you need to dispose of them. I have three friends that are on <laughs> on my radar and I'm on theirs for hand-me-downs. And love. It's just – it's so easy. And My best friend in the UK is in a Facebook group where they swap kids' shoes. So, oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, there's loads of ways. Yeah, I love it. Um. Gosh, where can we? But we, we go were talking about fibers. Yes, well, we were thank talking you. about fibers, Thanks. and I um, <laughs> one of the other things that I discovered in the course of researching my book was the problems with microfibers coming off polyester and yes. nylon clothing. Yeah. And at the time, this was mind blowing to me. It was, I think, two thousand and fourteen when I interviewed Dr. Mark Brown, who is a scientist, a British scientist, but who works in Sydney, Mm -hmm. looking at how microfibers are concentrated in Sydney Harbour around pipes. So that he was proving that these these fibers were coming out in the wash. Mm. And what he told me blew my mind. I mean, I just had no idea. And at the time, nor did anyone else. And he was finding it very difficult to cut through. He couldn't get funding. Yeah. He had, I mean, I'd urge you, I'd urge you, absolutely, please read my book. <laughs> <laughs> but if you do want to get the lowdown on this, it's yeah. good to read the book because there's a lot of detail around how he did what he did. But essentially what he was finding trouble with was that brands just didn't want to know. You know, mm. why would they? Mm. So what he was saying was your clothing is contributing to the ocean plastic problem. Now, what's been really great to see is that in the last few years, that's completely changed. Uh, We've seen brands like Patagonia step up and say, we know this is a problem. We want to fund research into it and we want to find a solution. Mm. And so we're seeing that conversation everywhere now. I mean, it's fascinating, but it's a big worry. Um, I've got some stuff that I wanted to share with listeners, which I got from the One Million Women website, which is a great place to go to find solutions on all our eco woes, especially around clothes. Agree. Nat and her team do such a beautiful job. They are amazing. Mm. I was just at the Australian Geographic Society Gala Awards dinner. Oh, where Nat got her, Natalie Isaacs got her amazing prize last night. She did, and it was so great to Mm. see. I mean, what she and her team do is unbelievable. She was named Conservationist of the Year. Yeah. And the work they do is just rad. But yeah, so this is off their website, basically. Because I thought, what can we do about this problem of microfibers that's coming off our clothing? Of course, we don't want to be part of the problem. What can we do? And so this is some advice that they've given. They say older synthetic jackets, so we're talking about fleeces, shed twice as many fibers as new ones. Mm-hmm. Acrylic clothes are the worst. They, re- they release 730,000 synthetic particles per-, per wash, which is five times more than polyester cotton blend and 1.5 times more than poly. So acrylic is bad. Let's not wash that. Mm. <laughs> And yeah, older and so stuff let's shed. just have a think. So acrylic, what does that look like in our wardrobe? What are the main School items? Jumpers, unfortunately. Yeah, cool. So fleece mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, just cheapo jumpers. Yeah, <laughs> uh, acrylics often used to stop wool pilling, but acrylics sort of quite scratchy. It's a bit probably more prevalent in the UK in my childhood than it is in Australia, but it's certainly used. Mm. But I think that idea that if you've got a really old polar fleece that you love, it may well be shedding vast amounts of this junk, these plastic fibers into the water system. Yeah. So it might be time to retire it and stop washing it and use it as a cat bed. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Uh, But I also think it comes back to this idea that we need to embrace where possible alternatives. So, of course, when you're looking at your exercise tights, they're going to be what are we going to do about our active wear, Claire? I don't know. (laughs) And and we don't know yet, do we? But I do think that where it is possible. So if you're looking at, you know, just 
polyester, junky polyester fashion, don't buy it. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know what we're going to do about exercise pants. Certainly there are cotton and elastane blends that are not going to contribute to this problem on the same level. Mm. But then there's problems with that because they're harder to recycle. Yeah, wow. Okay. I mean, it's just such a can of worms, isn't it? It's a Pandora's box. Well, I actually recently invested in a, um, I don't know if you saw this, but on Kickstarter, there's a little team of engineers who've been working on this ball that you can put in your washing machine to capture all of the... Yes. Yeah. So I invested in those and I think they're just about to finally be shipped um, because they obviously needed the funding to get the project off the ground. And... um, and That's I think, amazing. Can you share it? I'd love yes, to do it. Yes, I will, definitely. Um, I ordered two, so maybe you could be my plus one. Oh, yay. I would <laughs> like that. <laughs> I mean, some Mark Brown is of the opinion that some, obviously it's not just the silver bullet because there isn't one, yeah. but he, when I spoke with him, was of the opinion that it could be quite a simple fix mm. that might uh, reduce at least this problem. So if washing machines were routinely fitted with filters yeah and um also patagonia is is working with bags that you wash your clothes that you put your clothes inside to wash them in the machine Mm. that again filter out the fibers so i mean it's it's a thorny it's it's not obviously as easy as all that to solve it but i do think that we as consumers again need have a responsibility to know Mm. i mean there was also some research very recently that was just released that show that they'd found microfibers in drinking water did mm. you see that yeah i did um oh it's every microfibers in sea salt you know it's mm. it's showing up everywhere and we know they bioaccumulate so up the food chain so we also know that when we're eating our fish dinner mm. it's probably full of plastic yeah that's it and well the same problems being generated by microbeads in toothpastes and scrubs and things thank goodness oh, that there's some awareness around that yeah Ooh, i know that one but, drives me mad you know the thing is like um and it can make us mad but at least we're starting the conversation and when lots of different heads put their heads together then solutions start happening amazing businesses start Start blooming and all sorts of great things start to occur. So um, while it's scary and annoying and angry that this even happened at all, um, you know, for me, microfibers in fashion is the equivalent of a self-regulated chemical industry being allowed to just say, yep, mm. we're registering this new chemical and we've tested it and it's fine. And um, and then off they go. And then decades later, we realise it was a complete disaster and that it's causing all sorts of havoc, a.k.a. parabens, BPA, you name it. So for me, microfiber is kind of fashion's thing of this, isn't it? It's, um... I mean, it's certainly one of them. And the other one is chemicals. I yeah. mean, many of our clothing is laden with toxic chemicals too. Mm. So you've done a great article. Um, I'm just conscious of your time and everybody else's time out there. Yes. We, we need a part <laughs> two, clearly. But I do want to briefly touch on um, bras because an article that caught my eye that you wrote – Um, actually shared that 60% of the world's bras come from this one town in China. Unbelievable, right? And Nuts. It's the same story with jeans. There's jeans town in China as well. Yeah. But the story of our underwear is is one of unregulated toxic chemicals, and we know this. So, I mean, in that story, I write a column for Daily Life, which is on the Fairfax News website, so the age – 
Sydney Morning Herald, the Brisbane Times, etc. And I wrote about how toxic are your undies? Mm. <laughs> a guaranteed clickbait headline. Yeah. But actually, the answer is probably quite toxic. Yeah. I mean, I shared a story about how uh, there was a class action issued against Victoria's Secrets uh, because customers were finding that they'd got skin reactions and itchy rashes as a result of wearing certain bras that came from Victoria's Secret. And that was all about the chemicals that had been used in their production. Mm. That that class action was subsequently dropped. So we're not allowed to say why. We can speculate that they were paid off. <laughs> but I mean, I don't know why. I don't want to go to court. I don't want Victoria's Secret to yeah. prosecute me. However, I do want Victoria's Secret to think very carefully about what is contained within the rubbishy fibres they're using in their undies. Yeah. I mean, this is stuff that's next to your skin and the skin is the biggest organ. And who wants to be absorbing formaldehyde, for instance, which is one of the things that is used in textiles to stop them mildewing in, in shipping? Mm. And azo dyes, which we know are terrible. So what's the message here? Again, it comes back to that same thing. Do your research. Yeah. Spend a little bit of time going, okay, I'm in the market for new undies. Where am I going to buy them from? I might actually plan before I go. Yeah. I might have a look at one of the websites we'd suggested. I might seek out organic alternatives. Mighty Good Undies is my favourite. Oh, yay. <laughs> I love um, Eleanor and Hannah actually helped me produce our um, most sustainable shopping bag ever. Uh, which Amazing. Which got certified got. And, and incredible um, because of the work they do with Mighty Good Undies and Eleanor and I are good friends. So we, we made it happen and um, and I just I love those guys. I love everything they're working on. So Well, full disclosure, when I'm promoting them, she is my friend too. <laughs> well, there you go. But I, I even if I didn't know Elena really well and love her to pieces, I would absolutely absolutely rate the incredible work they've done they've spent so much time digging mm. into the supply chains to make sure it all is perfectly above board and that yeah. there's absolutely no toxins in what they make yeah but yeah it's a big it's a big these are big issues alex yeah they are big issues and did I'm, i stop you wanting to shop no no i know i'm i'm always happy to um i don't know i just i think fashion is just one of those things that you want to feel beautiful and feminine and all the reasons we buy fashion and, and engage with it but we also want to um stop the excess and we also want to be more aware of what we are buying and where it comes from and how the materials that are used to make it are grown or created if they're synthetic and if we're okay with that. And I think it, it really always comes down to where is this from and how is it made and am I okay with the answer to both of those questions and um, and do I need this is probably the third one we need to add in there, especially for clothes, right? Yeah, and I think that one of the things that I would like to leave you with is this idea that fashion is about glamour and beauty and creativity and identity and gorgeousness. And they're all the reasons I love fashion. Mm. But we need to disassociate those things from the ugly side. Are you really going to feel glamorous and beautiful in a dress that has caused someone or some area of the world to suffer in its production? I don't think so. No. Not very glamorous. No. So I think we still need to keep hold of that idea that fashion has the ability to make our hearts sing and make us feel great about ourselves. And, you know, it's delightful. But let's make sure that it's produced in the same way so that we can really feel proud about what we're wearing. 
I think that is a beautiful note to end on. Thank you, Claire. Everybody <laughs> Thank is, you. Everybody's going to be jumping out of their um, seats to open up a fresh tab on the internet and get your wardrobe crisis book. I know they will be. Yay. Because um, it's a great read. So everyone has oh, to. Oh, thanks, mate. Yeah, you have to do that. Um, and it'll just put a good fire in your belly to just step up your game in your own life. And that's what it's all about. All of us in our own little corners of the world doing that. So thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely. Super lovely. And I shall no doubt be speaking to you soon. Hashtag 30 wares or 70 wares. 70 wares. Can you make it? (laughs) Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Have a wonderful week. And before I sign off, I just want to say thank you to each and every one of you that writes a review or leaves a five-star rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you listen to the show. We appreciate it so much. It's the best way you can say thank you because it helps us stay visible and it helps people who haven't listened to the show before but who might come across it in a search think, "Mm, I might give that a go. So I appreciate that and I'm wishing you the best week. Until next week, you can catch us on lowtoxlife.com and if you want to check out those show notes, remember to put forward slash podcast and it'll take you straight there. Otherwise, I'll also see you on Instagram. I'm always posting there. It's a little bit more uh, personal and a look at sort of how I eat and what I do and my dad's pictures of blossoms and whatever else is going on. And that's at Low Tox Life. Have a great week and I'll see you next week. <laughs>